What started as an extracurricular activity, a volunteer effort to help refugees in your new country, grew exponentially. Your after-school language class became a viable education program, and your time helping refugees altered the trajectory of your life. You started something you cannot stop. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. I remember I was trying really hard to find a taxi to take me home after one evening of uh, teaching uh, the Sudanese men. And I was by myself that night. And so I was trying to find a taxi, and I just could not find a taxi. And I finally found this one guy who refused to take me for like less than four times what it was supposed to be. And I was like, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. And this was fairly late in the evening. It was probably like 11 p.m. And there weren't a lot of other people around. And he kept insisting on, you know, gouging the price of this taxi. And I was just like, on principle, no, like, I've been here long enough. I know how much this is supposed to cost. Don't exploit me because I'm an outsider. And um, and he just insisted. And I, I used the word that I had learned in class for rude, which basically means like, you are short on morals or you are short on manners. And so I said, you know, I said to him, you're rude. You are short on manners. You know, you are deficient in manners, I guess, is the way you translate it. And oh, my gosh, this guy lost his mind with me. He was so angry. He was like deficient in manners. How could you ever say that? That is unbelievable. You, you know, and I, I was, sh- I did not, cause, you know, in, in the U.S. when you're like, yo, you're being rude. Like that's, <laughs> that, that's what I had meant to convey. But I, the guy was so angry with me and, um, and was explaining to me how I should never, we kind of went into this like language lesson. It was so bizarre, like standing on the side of the road at 11 p.m. at this impasse, you know, like I, I'm like not paying him and he's not taking me. But yeah, he's explaining to me why I said, why what I said was wrong. And so it actually ended up being a really positive interaction. Um, I agreed to, I finally I was like, I feel so bad about saying what was a really mean thing to you. Um, and he he lowered the price them. And so we, we <laughs> which is, I'm the, the only moral to the story is that, you know, it probably shouldn't call people names, you know, in, in any language. This week, a deficiency in manners, a school for Sudanese refugees, and finding one's calling on the far side of the world. Join us on a journey from Mobile, Alabama to Oman, Jordan to learn that practice might just make perfect. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Grace Benton. I did a Fulbright English teaching assistantship in Amman, Jordan from 2011 to 2012. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I am currently a law student at Georgetown Law School.
as a Fulbright ETA, uh, you are expected to teach about 20 hours a week. In the Jordan context, we taught primarily in colleges, but I got placed in a high school. Um, so I was expected to teach or help other teachers in the classroom about 20 hours a week. Most of the students spoke pretty good English, but I wanted to give an introduction in Arabic just to kind of show folks that, you know, if you feel uncomfortable speaking only in English, you will be able to move back to Arabic. And so, um, uh, and just that it was a safe space linguistically. And so um, I gave this intro um, in Arabic and I was saying, um, and I was talking about the value of practicing English. And I said, the way to learn a language is practice. Practice, practice, practice. You need to practice at school. You need to practice at home. And like, my students are smirking. Some of them are kind of laughing under their breath. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's just like my accent. Maybe they're not used to hearing somebody speak, you know, this, this American woman speaking Arabic. And, um... So I, I, can t I press on. I'm like, look, you know what? You're going you're gonna to practice with me. You're going to practice with your family, practice with your mother, with your father, practice while watching TV. By this point, everybody's just uproariously laughing. <laughs> I, and one of the teachers, one of my, the Jordanian teachers is sitting in the back like, you know, stop, stop that, stop talking. And I was like, what am I saying? And later I came to find out that sort of the standard Arabic word that I was using for practice in colloquial Jordanian means to have sex. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's my first day. I'm really killing it on the first day of teaching game. I mean, I was like, I can't believe, I was so mortified. And I mean, Everybody knew what I meant. Like, they knew. They knew that I was using this modern standard word that it is not my mother tongue. <laughs> it was so mortifying. <laughs> and then for the remainder of the work week, you are expected to develop some sort of extracurricular project. Um, it can be at the school where you're based, or it can be in the community at large. So the extracurricular project that I got involved with, I really got involved with it in this totally fluky way. The Sudanese refugee community at the time, fewer families, it was mostly young men who had come to work or to access medical care or simply to seek asylum. Um, most of the people who were there were from Darfur. And so this group of people, for the most part, were day laborers. And so really worked from sun up to sun down and um, had no way to sort of access any educational opportunities. And many of them were in their late teens, early 20s, sort of at prime age to be continuing their education, and they just simply didn't have the resources or the time to do so. So they approached this NGO and asked if they would um, if they would consider starting a night program. And the NGO said, well, you know, we really don't have the resources to do this, but we have these energetic, young, Fulbright ETAs um, who are kind of raring for work. Uh, they really wanted something, uh, you know, these ETAs really want to do something. Um, they just don't know what, and they want to do something that's needed. So the NGO connected a couple of us with this community. And so we kind of just developed this relationship in this way that was not sort of mediated through an organization or an institution or anything like that. And so we agreed to come teach 
English classes for the Sudanese community in their homes because we didn't really have a place to go. And so we would traipse from our very, our sort of nicer parts of town over to um, sort of more run down parts of town, which is where most of the Sudanese lived and just generally where the refugees community, refugee communities ended up just because rents were more affordable and generally things were cheaper and there was sometimes more work there too. remember the first time I went, Amman is a super hilly city. And so the way that the city is set up is um, there are these staircases just crisscrossing the city and crisscrossing these neighborhoods. And so most of the way, as a pedestrian, the way that you would access different buildings or things like that is not to walk on the street, but rather just to use these staircases. And they're very steep. They're very old. Uh, they're broken stones a lot of times on them. Safe to say they're pretty treacherous. And so, uh, and not lit at all. And so we were teaching night classes, and so it was completely dark. And so a Fulbright colleague and I were feeling our way down sort of this very steep staircase, following these very convoluted directions that we'd been given for how to get to this place. And another thing about Amman is that while there are officially street addresses, they're not really used by anybody. And at the time, this was in 2011, Google Maps was not very responsive to if you did put the street address in. And so being a millennial, this was <laughs> very challenging <laughs> for me. Um, but so we managed to find our way. And so um, we're feeling our way down this dark, broken staircase. And it's just, I remember it being such a vivid, intense experience. The neighborhood that we were going to um, is very crowded and the walls and most of the houses are really thin so you can hear people's conversations you know from inside as you're walking down the walking down the staircase past their houses and falafel is ubiquitous so there's the smell of falafel being cooked on the street and so we we finally found where we were going i was relieved i'd been told that this part of town that we were in was really dangerous for foreigners and particularly for women. And so I was a little tense and on edge. My Fulbright colleague who was with me was thankfully a very tall man. And so that kind of put some of my fears at ease. But all the same, I remember just not knowing what to expect. I think, too, as Americans, we hear so much about the things that refugees go through. I mean, we hear a lot of narratives about refugees, both positive and negative. And so to meet a group of refugees for the first time, having all of these kind of tropes and narratives running through my brain, this was sort of a big deal for me, you know, at age 22. And being from Alabama, I'd never met a refugee before. So we finally got to the place where the Sudanese community lived, or where rather a large group of Sudanese men were living, where we had agreed to teach these classes. And uh, we opened the door, and there's this really big step into sort of the main, I guess it's like the courtyard of their house. And just without missing a beat, I just promptly missed the step. And <laughs> fell on my face <laughs> on the like just in front of you know 25 
men who were, would become my students. But I think they, too, were a little bit nervous. They didn't know what to expect of us. You know, I don't think they've met many Americans before either. And so my tumbling on my face as I met everybody for the first time, I think really <laughs> broke the tension. You know, everybody just started laughing. I started laughing. They started laughing. <laughs> I was fine and didn't get hurt. <laughs> I'm in touch with some of my former students from this class, and they still make reference to Teacher Grace's <laughs> big first night. I think as Americans, when we hear about refugees and think about refugees, one of the first things that we search for is how can I help? How can I do something? And being in this place where I, in this position where I could do something, this was a posture I'd never really been in before. And at age 22, with, you know, sort of fresh out of college, I didn't have a whole lot of skills to offer. But one thing that I could do was speak English fluently. And so I think being able to share this, however small it was, was something that I was really you know, a real pleasure to do while I was uh, while I was part of this, and so this arrangement that we had with the Sudanese community um, got more and more popular, and people started hearing about it uh, from other neighborhoods, and so would come from across town. Sometimes they'd even come from outside of the city uh, to come and and study with us. Um, we were by no means super professional teachers, you know, but you receive language training as well as some pedagogical training before you start the ETA. And it was really neat to be able to feel like I was getting better as a teacher, as an instructor, and really doing something to assist this community that really otherwise didn't have access to a whole lot. This arrangement that we had with the Sudanese community grew and grew, and eventually it just was not tenable to hold it in these guys' living rooms anymore. I mean, we were jamming like 40 people into, you know, a, a sort of a matchbox-sized room. And so we managed to negotiate with um, the headmaster of a local school and said, look, we've got this night school program, and you're not using your school at night. You're only using it during the day, would you let us do this? And so it, it took some cajoling and some um, negotiation, but eventually we were able to convince uh, we were able to convince the school to let us use the space in the evenings, and it was fantastic. But then there became the problem of how to get people to school, and so we then had to convince a bus company to sort of run buses for a pro bono. I mean, for me, this was such an incredible view into. Just what it takes to get a project like this off the ground. And I am delighted to say that the program is still going to this day. An, an NGO, the original NGO that didn't have the resources to create the program in the first place, uh, once we kind of laid the groundwork for it, ended up picking it up. And that was fantastic. And it grew, I mean, it was over. By the time I left Jordan in 2012, there were over 350 people attending this. And it was amazing. We had over five levels. And one thing that I think was really cool to come out of this is that once we got it in a place where it was 
in a proper school, the women started coming. And so uh, when the women started coming, the kids started coming. And so I ended up being put in charge of the kids' class, and it was such an incredible experience. We had Sudanese, we had Somalis, we had Yemenis, we had Iraqis. Um, I think at this time, a few Syrians had started coming to Jordan. For somebody from Alabama, rural Alabama at that, getting this kind of exposure to different nationalities was just transformative for me. One thing that really came out of this too was that, you know, in the course of getting to know my students, um, I started hearing about what their lives were like. And this is really my first exposure to what the challenges are for refugees. And particularly, you know, the challenges for refugees in a country where they don't look like the people of that country. Uh, it was really hard to be in a place where you were so ostensibly not part of the community. You were so ostensibly an outsider. And so it was interesting, too, to think about my experience of foreignness in Jordan as a white American woman versus the, exper the experience of many of my students, um, most of whom were black refugee children. When I first met the members of the Sudanese community, a lot of the guys in the class, before I started teaching the kids class, a lot of the guys in the class were you know, my age. And so to meet people, they were my age, but just have such radically different life experiences. I mean, people talked about their experiences fleeing Darfur, and a lot of people fled on foot. The stories that pe my students told me were tragic and heartbreaking, but also full of resilience and strength and just perseverance. And it was incredible to hear what people had gone through and yet how they persevered on. I mean, a lot of my, a lot of the, uh, the, my adult students, they'd work for, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day and then come to our class with this energy and intellectual curiosity that, you know, I don't think many of us even have, many of us here in America even have more in, you know, a prime condition, you know, let alone after a really grueling work day. And this is just, this was the daily reality for people. And so the exposure to, the exposure to people's resilience and strength and perseverance was, was really, again, transformative for me. I think in seeing how strong and committed my students were made me want to be stronger and more committed to the things I was doing and the things that I was working on. It was at this point in my life that I was like, I want to pursue a career working with refugees, doing what I can to help alleviate the refugee problem that we have. And when I say refugee problem, I don't mean that refugees are the problem. You know, I mean, the problem, um, I think, it, it offered me this insight into this world that I'd just never been exposed to before, where conflict 
and persecution goes on unabated. And there's a real human cost. And so watching this human cost, which is which plays out in the lives of real humans, in the, I became really convinced that like if people but so on the other side of the pond, so people in America could see what I was seeing and experience what I was experiencing, like surely we would want to take action about this. I learned more about what my role could be in sort of alleviating this and in bringing these stories back to my community in Alabama. It was really amazing. My parents came to visit over the holidays, and so I took them with me to one of our nightly classes, and they loved it. They made so many great connections there. And um, wildly enough, I didn't even know this, but Mobile, Alabama, has a refugee resettlement program, as do there are many refugee resettlement sites in Alabama, unbeknownst to me. But fast forward five years, I think it was, one of my former students who my parents met when they came to visit for the holidays um, got resettled to Mobile, Alabama. And so we're it's like 30 minutes down the road from my parents or something like that. And it was this just total like convergence of worlds for me and for my parents as well. And, and also for, um, for, the young man who was in my class who got resettled. It was so amazing for him to know somebody in in Alabama. And <laughs> the stereotypes about Alabama are pervasive throughout the world. <laughs> and so even refugees from Darfur are like, ooh, I don't know if I want to go there. And so, oh, but you do, you know, you know. I mean, it's human connection. Humans humans are the same everywhere. And so and <laughs> they really are. And <laughs> I think being able to con kind of connect on that level is so powerful and cool. And so it was great. My, my, uh, my parents are farmers. And so they, you know, they supplied this young man and his family family with, with things from their garden when they first um, uh, when they first moved. Our church brought furniture for them. It was just really, it was really f amazing how this connection from Amman, Jordan, five years prior persisted in this way. is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs.
this episode, Grace Benton traced her time as a Fulbright ETA in Jordan and what has become a life dedicated to refugee rights. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and you can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to Grace for her stories and her work to make the world a better place. I did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was Billy's Bounce by Shelley Mann. Cast Your Fate to the Wind by the Vince Garaldi Trio. Elevé Pay la Loire. <laughs> I can't speak French. By Lostana David and La Chica de los Grande Ojos Negros. My Spanish isn't much better. By Adrian Berenguer. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.